Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Life, as I'm very fond of saying, is too short to put up with a problem plant. And today, the very alive Debbie Flower, who's no problem at all, by the way, talks about when to pull the plug on the dying plants in your garden, including some organ harvesting tips when it comes to tomato plants who have overstayed their welcome at your garden party. Plus, we have tips for choosing and storing those late fall fruit favorites, persimmons, apples, and citrus. Merry Christmas! The UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden Superintendent Emeritus Warren Roberts is in the holiday mood. He has everything you want to know about the plant of the week, holly, including information about a holly variety that will literally make you upchuck. Even its name implies as much. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's episode 158 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in, well, today, way over 30 minutes. Consider it your Christmas bonus. Let's go. You gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them. No, we are not going to sing a Kenny Rogers song for you. We're gonna tell you when it comes time to shut down your garden. We face that at least twice a year if you have a warm season and a cool season garden. But but but, but you don't want to take them down. There's still stuff out there. There's still tomatoes. There's still beans. There's still any number of things on those plants. Well, at some point you're gonna have to bite the bullet. Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. How long should we let our fruits and vegetables linger in the garden? Good question, Fred. I've got a real moldy tomato out there in the <laughs> <Have> yard. <you>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's probably past its prime. It probably is. Yeah. And, and that plant may still have uh, unripe tomatoes on it. Uh, you can leave a plant and it will struggle along. And in, actually, in very warm climates, like uh, the Tucson area, Phoenix area, you can leave your tomatoes over the winter mm-hmm. and they are perennial plants. They will come back the next season, the next warm season. But for the most of the rest of us in the U.S., that's not going to happen. When we get our first hard freeze, which is 28 degrees Fahrenheit or colder, they will turn to mush, like the frozen mm-hmm head of lettuce in your back of your refrigerator turns to mush. So the best way to tell when to do things in the garden, especially the uh, warm season vegetable garden, is by night temperatures. Or morning lows. Or more, You're right. The low at night, right, is that's reported. They say it'll be 60 during the day. It'll be 40 at night. That's right before the sun comes up. Right. That's when it's the coldest part of the of the night. So that's the temperature we're looking at. It's that coldest temperature for the day. And warm season crops, so melons, squash, peppers, tomatoes, beans, will really stop being vigorous when night temperatures settle at 55 degrees Fahrenheit or below. But they'll still look good. They'll still look good. They'll yeah. still have flowers on them. They'll still have fruit on them, but they will slow down dramatically in their production. And I admit I have a tomato still in the garden. It has one 
tiny fruit on it that's red and has a hole in it from some visiting marauder. Mm-hmm. So it happens fairly quickly between the time that the, the night temperatures hit and settle at 55. It's not the very first night that you get 55 for a cold. It's when they settle. When you have a series of them, three, four nights in a row that are 55 or below, then the plants aren't going to be very productive. It's time to take them out. We won't go into all the details about how to save green tomatoes. We did that uh, a while back in episode 152, Green Tomato Ripening Tips. You can check that out and um, get all the advice you need to know about uh, saving your tomatoes, which ones are worth saving, and uh, how to uh, save them uh, to give them a chance to ripen. So we won't go into that here. Again, go back to episode 152 to uh, learn about that. You have an interesting technique for maybe... Getting them to ripen out there. So prior to pulling your warm season plants, you talk about basically kind of stripping the plant. Yeah, but it's quite a bit prior to pulling the plant. Okay. If your plant says, and you would know this by the type of plant you have, it'll be on the seed packet. They'll say, uh, or it'll be in the seed catalog. They'll list the type of tomato, the name of the tomato, and then they'll say 70 days. And that means from the time you put the plant in the ground, it'll be 70 days until you get a ripe tomato. Mm-hmm. So if it's a 70-day tomato, then you have to guess when your night temperatures are going to drop to f- settle at 55 and count back 70 days from that. Oh. <laughs> and that's when you would start this process of removing uh, flowers and uh, from the plant so that it doesn't set any more fruit and the ones that are left on the plant will ripen fully. Boy, I hope you have a growing season of 140 days. Yes, it would be right. kind of sad to uh, <laughs> be uh, cutting back a plant before right. it's had a chance to mature. Right. Frankly, I don't know that anyone would do that. There's always the hope that you're going to get more fruit and you will get more fruit. And even if it doesn't ripen, we know there are things you can do with the green tomatoes. And there's something called sink priority, which I always thought, yeah, the wife gets the sink in the bathroom. (laughs) Go find someplace else. Uh, What is sink priority? Sink is the place where the uh, plant sends the food that it makes. It makes the food in all the green parts and then the food sinks somewhere. It travels around the plant and it sinks or ends its its travels in a in a place where it settles. And that those places are growing points, uh, flower buds, fruit buds and ripening fruit. And there is a priority in the plant over what gets the active, the food that the, the green parts are making. And fruit needs, fruit's a high priority. Fruit needs to be fed to get a lot of food into it. And flowers are a high priority. So if you have existing fruit on the plant and flowers, then you want to convert your sink. You want to skew the sinks toward the fruit so that you get as much ripening out of the fruit as possible. So that would be picking off the flowers. I would not pick off new growth because picking off new growth stimulates the plant to make more new growth. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you take off one stem tip, you're going to end up with two or more. So you've actually doubled your sinks there and taken more food away from the fruit. So I wouldn't touch the growing points. I would just remove the flowers. So you're just pinching off the flowers. Yeah. And probably the best time to do that is mid-morning. Yes. Yeah. The plants make food during the day. Then they move it around at night. And make other chemicals at night. And so the plant has the most, all the plant parts have the most sugar in them, the most plant food in them early in the morning. So that's when you would take the flowers off. All right. And I imagine immature fruit as well. Right. If it's small and it's never, doesn't have a chance, you're going to hit your cold nights 
in the next two weeks, three weeks, doesn't have time to ripen or mature, get to a good usable size, whether you want to use it green or red. If it doesn't have that time, then take it off. And again, this would be true of uh, melons, squash, peppers, tomatoes, and beans. Yes. Yes. And growing, if you wanted to grow a giant pumpkin, one of the things you have to do all through the growing season is remove secondary fruit because you want all the food to sink into the giant pumpkin, not into these other fruits. And why you would do that? Well, I'll tell you, you'll do it once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you realize it's much easier picking up a 30-pound pumpkin than a 100-pound pumpkin. We did it once at school with students. And then, yes, we, we got a 250-pound pumpkin, but it's like, now what do we do? Yeah. It's out in the back field. How do we get it out of here? What about cool season vegetables? I would think uh, cold would be their enemy. Yeah, cool. There's There's freezing and there's hard freeze and there's cold. And they're all different things. Hard freeze, as I mentioned, is 28 degrees or below, and that's the temperature at which an actively growing plant cell uh, will form ice crystals inside of it and burst. The uh, freezing is 32 degrees, and that's just when water becomes ice. But plants have a lot of water in them, but it's not pure water. It's got a lot of other stuff in it, and that's why their freezing temperature is actually 32. So 32 degrees Fahrenheit is just cold. That's ice. And some plants can survive Ice. So the uh, critical point is 28 degrees? Critical point is 28 degrees. If you hit 28 degrees and below for a long period, starting sometime in the fall and ending sometime in the spring, you're not going to grow a vegetable garden during that period of time unless you have season extenders, which would be greenhouses or high tunnels or something like that. Another enemy of cool season crops is early heat. Yes. And we're seeing that here in California a lot sooner than we used to. It's now in January where temperatures are getting abnormally warm in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And what does that do to cool season vegetables? It stimulates them often to, to bloom. And cool season vegetables are typically ones where we don't eat the fruit. So we don't want flowers. We eat the leaves or we eat the, the roots that have accumulated food like a, a beet or, or a radish, or we eat the buds of the flowers like broccoli. We don't want a fruit to form. Typically, heat will stimulate them to f flower. And then like the lettuces and the cabbage and the spinach and things, they become very bitter when they when they flower. Uh, before the International Pollinator Society starts setting up a picket line outside <laughs> our window here in the Butylon jungle, mm -hmm. uh, we should point out that those flowers do attract a lot of beneficial insects. They do. And when I have something that does bolt, is the term, go to flower, uh, if I have a whole bunch of them, I will leave one or two to allow those beneficials something to eat. If I have use for that space, I want to grow something else, I want to modify it or whatever, uh, I will take most of the crop out, but just leave a few for the beneficials to feed on. All right, so I imagine then the, those cool season crops that um, may need a little bit of protection then when temperatures get down to 28, beets, carrots, cauliflower, celery, chard, Chinese cabbage, endive, lettuce, parsnip, parsley, pea, radicchio, Although there are others, though, that, that can survive a hard freeze unprotected. Yes, there are uh, some that, that can survive a hard freeze un unprotected, including arugula, Austrian, winter pea, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, fava bean, garlic, kale, kohlrabi, leek, mustard, radish, rhubarb, rutabaga, spinach, turnip, and walla walla onion. And they have an, a, a way to make antifreeze. I'm not going to go into it, but a way to make antifreeze in their, their plant parts. You might lose the tops to things like beet and radish, but the 
part that you eat is still there. The part underground is still there. Okay. So like carrots and parsnips would fall into that category. Right. So you may want little labels of some sort so you know where, where to harvest them from. And if you get snow, snow is an insulator. Snow will cover the ground and, and it's actually a wonderful insulator. It's better to have in a cold climate, it's better to have snow on the soil than to have bare soil when temperatures get below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It is better for the plants in a cold climate to have snow on the ground when the temperatures get below 32 degrees Fahrenheit than it is to have bare soil because the bare soil can if it's exposed without snow, can get down below as low as the air temperature gets. If there's snow on the ground, the air temperature can get down into single digits, but the ground will remain at 32 degrees. Smart Pots, it's the original award-winning fabric planter. It's sold worldwide, and Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. Smart Pots, by the way, are BPA-free with no risk of chemicals leaching into your soil, your herbs, vegetables, and other edibles. That's why organic growers prefer Smart Pots. And they last for years. Some gardeners have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade. Smart Pots' breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants. Because the fabric breathes, Smart Pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for really hot and really cold climates. And unlike a plastic pot, the fabric won't crack or break from frost or when dropped. For more information, visit smartpots.com Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts when you buy Smart Pots at Amazon. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred. Back in October here, we had an atmospheric river event uh, plop down over our heads. Uh, locally, mm -hmm. we got six inches of rain in 24 hours, which for us is a lot. In fact, it was sure a is. record amount. And I noticed that uh, in my cool season garden that I had just planted a few weeks before that. So there was lettuce transplants in there and the leaves of the trees hadn't fallen yet. So I didn't have any mulch on there. Mm hmm. And when you get heavy rainfall, that splashes dirt back up into those leaves of the plant. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had some oak leaves to mm -hmm. put down there mm -hmm. to stop that. And not only does it splash it up, which can transfer diseases if you happen to have diseases in your soil. Uh, it also covers the leaf so you don't get photosynthesis going on in that portion of the leaf. And it makes your lettuce gritty. Yeah. Uh, but it also compacts the soil. The power of a droplet of rain on the soil uh, is so strong that it, it moves the particles closer together and it makes that soil less desirable for the plant to grow in. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could set up tunnels or row covers. Uh, yes. But when you get that much rain so quickly, they better be sturdy. Yes, yes, that's very true. Sturdiness was was critical because the storm came in not just with heavy rain, but with some wind, yeah. and which is typical of a storm. So, yes, row covers are a spun fabric. If you sew, it's like interfacing. And they come in different thicknesses. Some of them are just for keeping insects out. Um Cabbage moth is uh, one of those insects. It's a little white moth with black spots on its wings, and it looks for plants in the Brassicaceae family, which includes cabbage, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, uh, and it will lay its eggs on the leaves of that plant. Then the, the babies hatch. They're a little worm, a little caterpillar, and they eat typically from the bottom of the leaf. They are voracious. <laughs> they will eat the crop pretty quickly if you 
don't catch them. And they're hard to see because they become the color of whatever they're eating. So if you're growing those crops and air temperatures are mild, like into the spring, or you're putting them in early in the fall, if you can grow into the winter, you may want to cover those with a very light row cover so that you're excluding the cabbage moth adults from getting to your plants. Yeah, the, the plant can withstand uh, insect damage a lot better the more mature it is. Mm -hmm. So if you just return from the nursery and you're planting that new garden of those baby transplants, it's not a bad idea to throw a row cover over it right then and there, no matter what the weather is, just to keep uh, the flying insects out of there. Right. Don't right. give them a target. Right. You can use a hoop or, or you don't even have to if, if it's loose enough so that the plants, it's, it's very lightweight that the plants can push it. Now, this similar fabric comes in much thicker versions and those are to trap heat. They obviously will also keep the, the moth out, but they trap heat and they, they can be used to keep a plant that can withstand 32 degrees alive for the one night here and there that temperatures get below, let's say, 28 one of the beauties of having citrus trees, if you live in an area where you can grow citrus, is the fact that they're fine on the tree until yes. you need them. And yes. they're, they're much happier there. But if you get some extreme cold temperatures, uh, you might have to harvest them. Yes. Cold damage in a citrus is actually drying damage. It's the roots are unable to bring water up. And so the the plant dries out. And then when the plant dries out, it can't hang on to its fruit and fruit doesn't mature anymore. It can become a problem. But if you can trap some heat during that chilling event with a frost cloth, then you can prevent that damage. Another way to tell if uh, the citrus on your trees is getting past their prime is give it a squeeze. If it isn't as firm anymore, if you notice that outer coating is, is kind of loose, mm -hmm. the fruit has pulled away from the skin, mm -hmm. maybe it's time. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. They will turn from shiny citrus store best on the tree, given the right environmental conditions. When the fruit turns from shiny to dull, that's an indication it's ripe because the fruit has exuded a wax out of its skin to protect it, to store water. And so they go from shiny to dull when they're ripe. And they may or may not turn orange. In warm places, citrus does not change color in the skin. The fruit will be orange in an orange, but the skin will not. If we we import in the U.S. a lot of citrus from Brazil, and it will be brought in and put in a chill room so that it turns orange for we Americans to believe that it's really an orange. But in Brazil, you might, you might buy it green. Ah, okay. The dirty little secret about growing avocados is everybody's expecting their avocados to turn out like what a Haas avocado looks like mm -hmm. that you buy at a grocery store, when in reality, the avocados that can take colder temperatures, and, and by that I mean above 40, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically, are, are the are the, the Mexican uh, avocados. There are those avocados that do better in slightly colder climates where temperatures don't get much below 40 degrees, if at all. Uh, the, the Zutano, the Mexicola, the Bacon, the Jim, and several like that. And they are a smaller avocado with mm -hmm. kind of a brownish green skin and a more nutty flavor. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to learn to accept that. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you're on the edge of USDA Zone 9 and not living in Ventura or Santa Barbara. Where, yes. The other uh, fruit of the season that people are harvesting in mid to late fall, the persimmons. And there's two types of persimmons, basically. There's astringent and non-astringent. If you don't want to pucker up, 
after tasting one, you want the non-astringent varieties. Mm-hmm. The astringent varieties, like the Hachia, need to get totally, totally soft mm-hmm. before they sweeten up. Yes. Whereas the popular Fuyu, if it's firm, you can harvest it off the tree. And I saw them both in my local grocery store yesterday. Ooh, confusion. Yes, <laughs> with no description. And they were both uh, firm. Did they just say persimmons? Yeah, well, they said Hachia and okay. Fuyu, so right. if you knew. But when you look at them, the Fuyu, this is like a visual mnemonic. The way I remember which one is the Fuyu is the Fuyu is the flat one that has several sort of lobes mm-hmm. on the bottom of it. And the word Fuyu has two U's in it. Oh, okay. F-U-Y-U. So those are the lobes, those U's, okay? Hachia is more teardrop shaped. And I just, I bought some Fuyus and they weren't all ripe. And there was a woman there dig, they were in bags. I dislike that when the grocery store does it, but they were in bags. And so you had to buy a bag of six, let's say. And she was digging through the bags, looking for a bag where they were all deep orange. And I tried to tell her that they will ripen, yeah. but I don't think she spoke English. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was a problem, but they will ripen so you can buy them wherever you can get them, your farmer's market, or you can get them from your neighbor's tree if you happen to live in a place where they are grown, or your grocery store, and they might be um, not bright orange, but they will ripen once you take them home. Please note in the sample box that we have here that oh, I brought yes. into the studio of a uh, garage ripening uh, chef's choice tomato, a couple of Fuyu persimmons, and a couple of Mihuwasi mandarins. There are pieces of the stem still attached to it. These were not ripped off the plant. They were cut off the plant to preserve a piece of stem, or in the case of the persimmon, the calyx, I believe that's called, where you got mm-hmm. that, that leafy part right above it yes. with a piece of the stem. That keeps the fruit intact and it won't uh, spoil as quickly. Right. If you're harvesting your own or you're buying from someone who has harvested, make sure there is a piece of stem attached to these fruits and it prevents or it slows water loss from the fruit and it prevents making a big hole that where bacteria and fungus will get in and rot the fruit. I think people are in too big of a hurry to harvest apples. Mm. That apples, I think, can get sweeter on the tree. The, the prime example out here is the Granny Smith, which if you shop at a grocery store, they're green. When in reality, if you leave them on the tree, they will turn yellow and be much sweeter. People think of Granny Smith as a tart apple. Leave it on the tree. Let it get a tinge of yellow to it. It'll be much sweeter. I didn't know that about Granny Smith. I know that apples should have a nice, warm back color to them. Mm-hmm. They might be red on the surface, but there there will be blotches of other colors behind it and, and a little bit of yellow, a little bit of uh, warming in that color will indicate ripeness. Uh, also, it, I think it's important to note that uh, not everything ripens at the same time on the tree. True. It depends where it's located. Yes, it does. Tree. I see that with my citrus, that they start on one side of the tree and ripen first and a different trees in different part of the yards ripen at different times. What is it about storing apples in the refrigerator? You hear all these warnings of don't store it with anything else. Apples continue to give off ripening hormone ethylene when after they have been removed from the tree. And that was a big thing I studied they, when I took a, a tree fruit class at Rutgers that spent quite a bit of time on it. Uh, there were apple orchards in the state and, and further north in New York State. Um, and so it was a bigger industry around there. And they came up with controlled atmospheric storage. So the apples you buy in the fall in the grocery store have come pretty fresh right from the farm. But we can t- we can purchase apples throughout the year at our grocery stores all the way through spring and summer. 
and I don't know if you've noticed, but the flavor is not as great when you do that. Duh! It, yeah, and the texture <laughs> declines as well. And that's because these apples have been in controlled atmosphere storage. Controlled atmosphere storage means that they are at a certain temperature and they are best stored at um, about 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. In the controlled atmosphere storage, their air is pumped out of it. The ideal temperatures for storing apples are between 30 and 32 degrees, except for Macintosh, which is better at 36, but definitely under 40 degrees. Most of our refrigerators at home are 40 degrees, or they may even be 42. So make sure your refrigerator is is cold enough if you're going to store a bunch of apples. Uh, maybe you have the extra refrigerator in some other part of your house where you bought a big box. Make sure that it's cold enough. The colder, the better. That slows down this uh, pumping of ethylene out of the fruit. And so if you then in the controlled atmosphere storage, which we don't have at home, they suck the ethylene out. So they're sucking air out and putting fresh air in. If the ethylene builds up, then the ripening of the apples goes faster and faster and faster and they decline faster mm. and faster and faster. Americans like things big. Yeah, they, we do. They, they always have. Uh, but when it comes to storing apples, uh, does a big one have an advantage over a small one? Big ones don't store as well as small ones. Mm, okay. Yeah. So store the small ones. Store the small ones, eat the big ones, right. And there are certain cultivars that are better for storing than others. So that's something to look into. If you're going to grow your own or you're going to buy a whole bunch of them at some orchard, learn the ones that are better for storage, and that will be listed with their name in a catalog, for instance. Then you have the opportunity to store apples for f future use. According to Washington State University, the following apples are good types for keeping or storing into the winter. Arkansas Black, Ashmeet's Kernel, Brayburn, Empire... Fuji, Gala, Granny Smith, Grimes Golden, Mutsu, Newton Pippin, Northern Spy, Rhode Island Greening, Spartan, and York. You named some of my favorites in that list. Uh, Ashmead's Kernel is just, to me, a, a, it's, it's an ugly, ugly apple, but mm -hmm. it's so tasty. Mm -hmm. And Mutsu is one of my favorites. It's a big green apple that is just so tasty. I didn't realize be, being a big apple, I would think, oh, it doesn't store well. But right. according to Washington, uh, So I can assume, or I can make up a story, okay. that there's something about its its physiology that it doesn't produce ethylene as quickly. Hmm. Okay, we'll go with that. And you heard it on a podcast, so it must be true. <laughs> I have uh, some apple rootstock in the ground that I am grafting over. So maybe I'll add one of each of those. Oh, that's a show of its own. Grafting? Yeah. 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 So not all of us have the facilities to store a whole bunch of apples. Uh, and so we can do other things with them to make them last through the winter to have the wonderful flavor of them. One is drying, which is an easy thing to do with window screens. Uh, another one is freezing them if you have a, a freezer or making applesauce and canning that applesauce or obviously freezing it. So apples can be with us all year round and we can get the best flavor out of them but by buying them in the fall. Here, try a dried persimmon. A dried persimmon. Yes. Mm, looks good. Fuyu persimmons. They are very good. A little bit of moisture in the flesh. The skin is a little bit stiff. We keep it in a jar in case you couldn't hear that. Mm-hmm. I, I like persimmons. I and this is fuyu. This is a fuyu. And the beauty of the fuyu persimmon, as opposed to many other persimmons, it's seedless. Yes. So it makes it a lot easier to um, put on a dehydrator tray about uh, seven and to eight hours at 130. 
you have an official dehydrator. Yeah, I have an official dehydrator, yes. Have you dehydrated them in other ways, let's say in the oven or between window screens? No. By the time persimmons ripen, it's probably a little too late for outdoor. Right. Uh, Humidity ripen. here is, is quite high in the 80s and 90s these days, so that would make it difficult to dehydrate outdoors. But, uh, you know, I've got a, a nine-tray dehydrator. Uh, does the job. Yeah, it does the job, and uh, I love dried persimmons. This is the second jar we've gone through. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a great snack. Yeah, it is. All right. We learned a lot. Know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help on this. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for having me. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, you know something you're missing out. Now arriving at California, Arizona, and Texas nurseries are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites of great tasting, healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and a lot more. For you gardeners in the Pacific Northwest, mountain, and southern states, look for Dave Wilson's Farmer's Market favorites in January and February. You want more? Well, by the second week in January, you're going to find your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees in stock, including my favorite, the plum apricot cross, the pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great-tasting fruit and nut varieties of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. Have you taken a look at the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter? There's one that accompanies each episode of the Garden Basics podcast. It's a deeper dive into what was discussed on the podcast, along with more great gardening information. In the latest newsletter, we'll have instructions and pictures on how to store apples so that they'll last for up to five months or longer. You can find a link to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter in the podcast show notes or go to FarmerFred.com or go to Substack.com slash Garden Basics. Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter and it's free. Please subscribe, share it with your gardening friends and family. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. And uh, thank you for listening. We like to talk with Warren Roberts. He is the superintendent emeritus of the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He always has a nice plant of the week. And uh, speaking of the time of the year when you deck the halls, what do you deck the halls with? Ilex. Well, it's not very yeah. musical, but it's true. Warren, it's it's holly season. Yes, boughs of holly. Boughs of holly, <laughs> tra-la-la. La, la. la. Yeah. Yes, and the, the name Ilex, I-L-E-X, which is the generic name for this for the for the hollies or most of them anyway in latin if you look it up in a latin dictionary it, it refers to an oak the quercus ilex the holly oak which is an evergreen oak native to much of the mediterranean and when the spanish and catalan speaking uh, people came to california in the 1700s they saw evergreen oaks that they um, assumed would be the same or similar to what was they knew back in the mediterranean 
And so they, they use the same common name, which is Encina, for the oaks, the uh, evergreen oaks in, in California. But we're not talking about oaks, really. We use that. I'm just mentioning that because the generic name of the hollies comes originally from the fact that, that, they, that these uh, shrubs and small trees had leaves that looked like the holly oak rather than the other way around. Rather prickly. So, yes, that is true. But you have to stick to it, you know. Thank you. So there are about 400 species of ilex. I remember being surprised at seeing them growing in Peru when I lived in South America. Many ilex species are tropical, and they have, have all kinds of forms. Mostly, They're mostly evergreen now. Ilex aquifolium, we'll talk about that mostly, is the one traditionally used in song, music, poetry, and decoration. The leaves are prickly, the berries are red, the ilex aquifolium is a small tree or, or a large shrub. Actually, there's some varieties that are rather small shrubs. And there are usually, the plant will have male or female uh, flowers. Of course, the female flowers will produce the berries, but they don't produce them well unless there is a male nearby with, which uh, provides the pollen for the production of the hollies. Often in the nursery trade, a branch is grafted, a male branch of male holly is grafted onto the uh, the one that is being grown for the berries so that there's no, you don't have to have two different plants. The common name for Ilex aquifolium is English holly. So my obvious question is, is it from England? Mm, that's a good question. I, it is from Europe. Whether it's native to England itself, I'm not sure. In the, in the, in the English language, we put the name English onto things even though they're native elsewhere. For example, the English oak is native to France and other areas. And I guess the French are a little less worried about things. They just call it oak. English holly, I think it's because the main tradition in this country for the holiday comes, uh, at least a lot of traditions, come from England. And that's the only thing I can think of. But, but yeah, that's, that is the common name used in much of the world. English holly. So there are many different kinds with berry colors that range all the way from from yellow through orange to red. The nice thing about the holly is that the berries stay on the plant even though the branch is cut to use for making wreaths or swags or various other things for the holiday season. The European holly or English holly uh, has very shiny leaves. Now, across the pond in North America, there is an, an, a holly, which looks very much like the, let's call it the English holly, which called the American holly. And that one is Ilex opaca. The, the specific epithet in that case indicates that the leaves are uh, not shiny. <laughs> At least that's my interpretation. And they have a they're kind of um, matte green. It was a beautiful postage stamp issued, so must be 10 years ago or more, of the American holly, and it really shows the this characteristic very nicely. The American holly can get to be a, kind of a large tree, can't it? What, up to 50 feet tall? Yes, I think in, in, in time, and if somebody doesn't cut it down, <laughs> it can get fairly large. Although you usually don't, I'm told, because I'm, I'm out here in California, that you don't usually see really big American holly trees in the wild. 
And it too has a number of different selections. So people have been looking at these hollies and saying, oh, there's one a little bit different. Let's, let's try growing that. And so we have dozens and dozens of select forms. There are some hollies that are deciduous, that lose their leaves in the winter. And there's uh, one called, in fact, Ilex decidua, which is a useful name. In the wintertime, and where it, where it is native, it is really splendid. You go, Going through a woodland, and here is this plant covered with bright red berries and no leaves at all to hide the berries. That one, one of the common names for that one is possum haw, <laughs> H-A-W. Well, that would indicate it's probably native to the southeast. Yes, it is. And you occasionally see it in the west planted. I know of a an abandoned farm uh, up towards, uh, I guess it's Oroville here in California, where the uh, somebody planted it, and there's enough uh, groundwater, it's kind of near a stream, that it has persisted. And there it is, brilliant red, right out in the middle of, of, an, of an undeveloped area. Very beautiful. And that one is often used, at, too, in, in the wintertime of, in the florist trade, but particularly back, back east where it's native. Another holly from the east, which is an evergreen, and is a beautiful small tree, used a lot. And if you go to Savannah, Georgia, those beautiful squares, within the city, you'll see it. And that one is called the Yaupon holly, Ilex vomitoria. Mm. I bet that has a story to it. (laughs) Well, all of the hollies have uh, alkaloids. That is to say, they have uh, substances which... Uh, are like caffeine or uh, theobromine, which is a, an alkaloid that uh, chocolate has. Uh, there is a tradition that at a certain time of year, I guess, about the change of the year, very strong tea of the leaves of this species would be brewed up. So it was very almost dark brown, and that would be a concern. It would cause nausea, getting rid of all the poisons that had accumulated, psychological and otherwise, in the previous year. You can start out fresh. <laughs> that's that's what I've been told. And since that's a tradition from a part of the United States that I, I, I don't live in, I just presume that that's the way it was or is. There is a very beautiful uh, holly with red berries, too, in China. It's called Ilex cornuta. That one is popular in mild climate areas or relatively mild climate areas. And it, there are many different forms of that as well. It has leaves that have the points on the sides, too. That will make a beautiful small tree. There's some very old ones in around near the Capitol building in Sacramento of the Chinese holly. Um, the story of hollies goes on and on. I, I'll name one more species, which I think is interesting. This one is a subtropical species. Could, I suppose it'd be grown as a houseplant. And this is Ilex paraguariensis from South America. And the leaves of that are actually gathered to make a kind of tea called, um, in Spanish, yerba mate. It's quite traditional in Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Argentina. When I lived in Peru, it was also available there. It has lots of alkaloids in it. You have to be careful when you're drinking it. If you drink too much, it'll make you quite jittery, really. (laughs) But it is a traditional tea for that area, and the leaves are dried and smoked slightly, so it has a nice little smoky taste to it. Well, okay then. I I did not know you could do all that with a holly. But folks, don't try that at home. 
No, don't try that. <laughs> Especially on the night before Christmas. <laughs> All right. No. <laughs> All right. But it's the holly. It, it, it grows uh, throughout the United States. There are varieties that will suit your climate that uh, you can enjoy. You can find them probably at your favorite local independent nursery or garden center. Ilex, I-L-E-X, the holly. Another great plant of the week from Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the University of California, Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. Put it on your list of places to visit if you like visiting places with pretty plants. The Arboretum at Davis. More information at their website, arboretum.ucdavis.edu. World-renowned Arboretum. Warren, thank you so much for the plant of the week, Holly. You're very welcome, Fred. Thank you for the opportunity. Don't forget, if you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's episode of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, please subscribe to the free Garden Basics newsletter. It's on Substack. Details are in today's show notes. The Garden Basics podcast will be on its winter schedule from November through January, which means there will only be one episode per week during this three-month period, and it'll come out on Fridays. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by SmartPots, and we thank them for their support. Garden Basics, it's available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.